Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. It inspired the French Revolution and Gandhi's march across India. Cathedrals are carved out of it, cities got rich from it, and we can't live without it. Today, we're talking about salt. I didn't know if I was going to wow you with just salt, but trust me, I think I can. Alex iNews takes a close look at the different kinds. I put them under the lens of a microscope, and what I found was shocking. Plus, Naomi Duguid shares stories from a world tour of salt. She even found it deep in the heart of Basque Country in Spain. There was a salt spring, and it cascades down the hill, and now... The evaporation happens in terraces. It looks like rice terraces. Our adventures with salt are coming up later in the show. But first, we're bringing to light a tense dispute between two postal workers over the pungent aroma of Limburger cheese all the way back in 1935. Writer Doug Mack joins us to recount what he has dubbed the Great Midwest Cheese Duel. Doug, welcome to Milk Street. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. So... This is a story about Limburger cheese and whether you can mail it or not, and we'll get to that story. But tell me about Limburger cheese in the United States. In the United States, Limburger is really a story of Swiss immigrants, and specifically in the town of Monroe, Wisconsin. There was an immigrant named Rudolf Bankert who first started making Limburger in 1867, and of course, Wisconsin, famously dairy country, right? And Monroe is specifically all about Limburger. Uh, There's a co-op there in Monroe that is still to this day the largest manufacturer of Limburger in the USA. So it's a big deal there. So Limburger, though, stands out as being a particularly odiferous (laughs) milk product, right? Um, It is a stronger smell than just about any other cheese. Yeah, exactly. Limburger has a reputation, right, of having a a very pungent, a strong aroma. And, you know, for the people who like it, that's part of the appeal. And even today, there is a Limburger and raw onion sandwich that is a staple at a cheese store and tavern on 16th Avenue in Monroe. And it's because it's such a strong taste that it also has these strong emotional connections that tie people back to this Swiss culture. Yeah, I I was reading that this sandwich, rye bread, sliced red onion, mustard, Limburger, a big, thick hunk of it. And then a lot of folks love it with strawberry jam. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's not about subtlety. Okay, so there was a duel, as you put it, between two local postmasters around mailing this cheese. So what happened, and how did this whole thing get started? So in 1935, there was someone in Independence, Iowa, who was prescribed Limburger 
by the local doctor. It's unclear exactly what it was for. Some people say that it was to help open up this person's sinuses because of the strong smell. <laughs> but we do know that they ordered a block of Limburger from Monroe, Wisconsin. And when it got there, the postal employees smelled it through the paper and they sent it right back. And they said, this is, this is too stinky. We can't deliver this. And local newspapers caught wind of this in both places and then nationally. The two postmasters tried to take it all the way to Washington, D.C. They contacted the postmaster general and said, you know, can you resolve this dispute? Because this was sort of an open question. This is not something that had come up before, apparently. Can you mail Limburger cheese? What steps do you have to take? Postmaster general says, you know what? Work it out yourselves. And so the two postmasters decided that the only way to resolve this was to have a smell off. So who exactly are these people participating in this grand smell off? So our two combatants here are Postmaster John Burkhard of Monroe, Wisconsin, and Warren Miller of Independence, Iowa. They meet in Dubuque, Iowa, which is sort of between the two towns. They go to this big grand hotel, the Hotel Julian, still open. So Postmaster Burkhard rolls up. He's got a couple other people with him from Monroe. They've brought 25 pounds of Limburger and some rye bread. And there are a bunch of reporters there. There was a guy from the Milwaukee Journal, a reporter named Richard S. Davis, who describes the whole thing with this sort of militaristic flourish. <laughs> and he says, neither contestant wore armor of any sort, except an opulent napkin placed immediately below the second chin. Both were standing stoically as they advanced to shake hands. A hush fell upon the gathering. The two postmasters are there. They're both eating cheese and hoping that the other guy changed his mind? Yeah, it seems to be more that Postmaster Burkhard from Monroe was trying to get Postmaster Miller from Independence to concede that Limburger isn't this noxious thing. I see. I think that the ultimate goal was that they wanted to be able to ship Limburger without it getting sent back. You know, there's pride at stake here. So take us inside the duel. You know, what actually happened? So they have this cheese duel. They go through multiple rounds. At some point in here, Miller mentions that actually he has lost his sense of smell. Um, he hasn't been able to smell things for a few years. He was really actually acting mostly on behalf of his employees who had taken offense to the odor of the cheese. And by all accounts, at the end, Miller says, yep, I enjoy it. He eats a sandwich and he says, break out the beers. So they all toast and Miller and his entourage promised that the next time Limburger came into their post office, quote, she will be royally received. So this was remarkably a front page event. Uh, you wrote that the Brownsville Herald had this story printed next to an adjacent headline about machine guns, which seems to me to be quite a mix of news stories, don't you think? This kind of gripped the nation very briefly. Um, it was during the middle of the Depression. There's also a lot of other stuff going on in the world. It's a tumultuous time. And I think that people were really looking for a little bit of lightness, a little entertainment that could distract them from all this other stuff, which, you know, is very relatable. Um, people were celebrating cheese or denigrating cheese, having a big debate about cheese. And this was something that was a bit of a distraction from everything that was going on in the world. So at the end of the day, Limburger can be mailed. Uh, do you know what's happened to Limburger in the intervening 85 years? Yeah. So 
in October 1935, so just a few months after this cheese duel in Dubuque, 50,000 people showed up for the glorious return of the Cheese Day Festival. They had had to cancel the last couple of festivals just because the local cheese industry was suffering. And so there was a parade. And John Burkhardt, the postmaster from Monroe, was guest of honor. And he also brought along Warren Miller, the postmaster from Independence, Iowa. So they kept hemming it up. And it sounds like they sort of became friends after this. <laughs> uh, you know, it's nice to have a story with a, a sweet ending. Now I got to go out and get a loaf of rye bread, get a big slice of Limburger, get some raw onions, some strawberry jam and mustard. I just, you know, I've, I've just got to find out firsthand what that tastes like. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, book a trip to Monroe, Wisconsin. I'm sure they'd love to have you. <laughs> Doug, uh, thank you so much. The story of the Limburger Cheese Duel of 1935. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That was Doug Mack. He's a food and travel writer and author of the online newsletter Snack Stack. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. So, Chris, uh, before we get started here, I have a question. Do you have any sort of goals for 2023? I guess my answer would be, when you get to a certain age, do you still need to have goals for the year? (laughs) Or can you just like, (laughs) yeah, here's my goal. I'm going to get up every morning happy I'm still alive. Okay. I'm going to make my bed, which I think is important. Okay. And I'm going to have the best cup of coffee I can find. Yep. And then go sit at my desk and... Just enjoy the day for six minutes. <laughs> that's then, all you're allotted with a family and, like and, yours. And then it's quarter of seven, and then I go to work. Okay. But, um, you know, you just have to take whatever you get and enjoy it, right? Okay. How about you? Well, geez. You want to run for president? No, no, no. I want to, from a culinary point of view, I want to cook more fish. My daughter had to come home for a while to save money because she was going to graduate school, and she doesn't like fish, so we didn't eat much fish. And she's moved out, and it's great. She's thriving. It's better. You know, I loved having her. But so the husband was like, we haven't had any fish in a while, so more fish. And other than that, I've taken up watercolors. Really? And I'm going to start, instead of just relegating them to every so often, every other weekend, it's going to be far more often. Well... Maybe this is the year I get to be a rock and roll star then. You've been trying forever. Well. In the style of the Grateful Dead. Yeah. So I'll be a rock and roll star. You're at more fish and we'll both enjoy the first cup of coffee. There you go. Let's take some calls. Yeah. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi. My name's Mike uh, from Traverse City, Michigan. How can we help you today? You know, about a year ago, my daughter, she's an arts teacher specializing in ceramic activities and she made herself a cloche to bake bread. I dropped a f- more than a few hints, and eventually she made me a cloche. And I've used it a few times to make bread, and it's just a lovely way to bake bread in. It has a hard glaze inside and out. Is this only going to be my bread maker, or are there other things I can do with it? Oh, no, there's lots you can do with it. But before we go there, let's just say for those people who don't know what it is, it's sort of a domed stoneware baker. And the point of it is why it's so great for bread is it's a very closed environment, so it traps steam. And there's two parts. There's the bottom, and then there's the domed top. So, yeah, you could use it for pizza for casseroles, for roasts, for fish. You could use it for just about anything you'd use a Dutch oven for. I think you would want to brown the things separately if you were going to put color on them and then add them to the container because you're not going to put it directly on a burner and brown anything in it. She has suggested that it could go on a stovetop. I'd be afraid to do that, though. I would be inclined not to do that. But let's hear what Chris has to say. This is about enjoying the cookware you have in your oven. Your daughter made this, and you love it, and that's great. But I would not put it on top of the stove. But you could use it in the oven for anything you want to 
I would also think about slow cooking in it, right? Like a roast at 250 degrees, like a long, slow braise would be my ideal. The older I get, the more I like to cook with things that have some meaning for me. They're not just something I bought in the store. So, yeah, you love this thing. It has a personal connection. Use it for as much as you can, sure. The pan itself, the bottom part, is about an inch and a half deep. Right. And about a 10 inches oh. across. You couldn't really do no, a, a big back. saucy thing, yeah. but you could do something that didn't, you know, wasn't a lot of liquid, didn't require a lot of height. Here's what I suggest. I would make bread with it. Keep it as a single-purpose thing. It's a very special piece of cookware for you. And leave it at that. And I think that's just lovely. It's just a lovely way to bake bread. Sure. Thanks so much. Yes, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Mark, and I'm from Phoenix. How can we help you? Well, I have a question about seasoning a flat-bottom wok. I purchased one um, a couple of months ago. It's a fairly inexpensive wok I got from a discount store, but it's brand new. All the stuff I've seen online and on YouTube and whatnot are how to season with a gas top stove. All I have is an electric stove and oven. Is there any way I can season this wok and do it properly without a gas stove? Yes. You're going to want to heat it up over sort of medium-low heat to get it fully heated evenly. And the first step would be to clean it. I would just put some cheap oil in there, maybe a quarter cup or so, third cup, and then put a few tablespoons of coarse salt in with some paper towels. Make sure you have an oven mitter in your hand or something. And just scrub out the now hot wok. And you could use a scrubber too. And then just clean that out with paper towels. Don't wash it. Let it cool down. Heat it up again with a couple tablespoons of neutral oil on the bottom. When it starts to smoke and gets good and hot, take another bunch of paper towels and rub the oil into the pan all around the inside. Do that a few times because if you don't, you'll get these sticky patches. So keep rubbing it in. Let it cool. Put the oil in the pan. Start to heat it. Rub it in two or three times and then wipe out the excess. Let it cool. Then you have a pretty well-seasoned wok, just like a cast iron pan. Every time you use it, don't wash it. (laughs) Don't use soap. Okay. Just wipe it out reheat it with the oil and repeat once. If you ever get sticky bits in there, add the salt. And the salt with the oil will clean almost anything, but never, ever put it in the sink or use soap or or wash it regularly. Even when I'm doing the first cleaning, I should not use water at all on it. No, you never need to use water. What you're doing is creating a layer of oil fat, essentially between the food and the pan. And when I choose my oil to use, what uh, kind of oil shouldn't I use or should use, if you you will? Uh, Nothing expensive. You could use... uh, High smoke point. Highly refined olive oil is actually very high smoke point. You could use that. Grapeseed oil, sunflower oil, all of those are fine. I don't like canola oil particularly because it's it's fishy. Okay. Peanut oil, too. Peanut oil. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that. I do appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you need a hand in the kitchen, call us anytime, 855 426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Aisha from Chicago. How can we help you? Well, I'm calling because I have a dilemma. Years ago, I was a paraprofessional at an elementary school, and they served home-cooked meals to the students. One of the things that they cooked occasionally on Fridays, was peach cobbler oatmeal. Mm. It was fantastic. Um, They'd serve it for breakfast, and after the students were served, if there was leftover, they would serve it to faculty and staff. I mean, it was so delicious that I needed the recipe. So I asked for the recipe and was met with a no. That's silly. I even tried to sneak down to the kitchen, you know, to see what was going on. I wanted to see the process. And you, know, you never got the recipe and you want to figure out how to make it, right? I want to figure out how to make it. All of my attempts have gone flat, literally. My peaches have gone flat and flavorless every time I've tried to cook it. I would start with the steel-cut oats. The best way to cook them is the night before and use one cup of oats to three cups of water. You can either start by sautéing the oats in a little bit of butter first, but you don't have to do that. Add the water and then bring it to a simmer cover it and let it sit without heat on the stovetop overnight. Then morning comes, you can add water or milk or almond milk, whatever you want, another cup 
and then bring it to a simmer and cook it about 10 minutes. So that really cuts down on the cooking time because they've sat overnight. That's how to cook the steel cut oats. I think, and Sarah would probably agree, with the peaches, if you want to use fresh peaches, is I would cook them in butter and a little sugar in a skillet for just a few minutes and concentrate the flavor, get rid of some of the water, and then add those to the oatmeal just before serving. So the one you tasted from the school, would the peaches, they felt like tasted like canned peaches or fresh peaches or what? You know, they may have been canned peaches. Yeah. I'm not certain. When I try to make it with fresh peaches, they're generally not as sweet. Yeah, I think they were canned. Um, Do you just add them straight up, like peel them and cut them up and add them? Uh, yeah, I've, well. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. that was the problem because you needed to sort of um, flavor them, you know? Like you would never throw just plain raw peaches into a pie without some sugar and acid, you know? Because you got to, you got to. I've never made a peach pie. Okay, this is great information. Thank you. Yeah, you need to point them up. You need to point up that flavor, even if they're ripe. And even if they're not ripe, if you do what Chris suggested by cooking them with some sugar, they will become more peachy and the texture will soften and they'll be really yummy. Uh, And just a tiny bit of salt, too. Yeah. And I always add a little bit of lemon juice. But, But you could use canned or bottled peaches. Yeah, we won't tell. And what else was in the oatmeal besides the peaches? They said peach cobbler oatmeal. Was there something else in there, too, like some spices? or? Yes, definitely could taste cinnamon, nutmeg. Just be easy on the cinnamon nutmeg. It'll yeah. take over pretty quickly, yeah. Sounds good. I'm getting hungry. It does sound good. Yeah. Just the name sounds good. Yeah. Aisha, let us know how it goes. You know what? I will. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your help. Okay, Thanks for Aisha. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Most Street Radio, coming up a journey through the world of salt. That's up right after the break. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit... 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Most Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, I'm joined by food writer Naomi Duguid. For her latest book, The Miracle of Salt, she traveled the world from the mountains of Morocco to the salt fields of Cambodia to see firsthand how salt is made and used. Naomi, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You and I spoke years ago. It was my favorite radio moment of all time. And you were talking about being in an orchard in Azerbaijan. Uh, There was an older woman. You guys did not speak the same language she gestured to you to come 
to her home, which was modest, and she fed you an apple and some tea. And I remember that moment because you were very emotional about that. Um, I could hear it in your voice. Does that, for you, encapsulate sort of why you do what you do? Oh, you know, it's it's a piece of it. I mean, basically connecting to humans and trying to understand where they are, what they have, what they do with what they have, and how they connect to themselves is my big goal. And then when there's a, a human connection, when somehow I actually get to to be present with someone and they're at ease with me, then yeah, that's that's the kind of oh, that's the real bonus. It's it's fantastic. So you traveled all over the world to learn about salt. So let me start with an obvious question, which is what is salt? Well salt, so a sodium chloride. And the sodium is the thing that gives saltiness to the salt we use and the salt taste. So what's it doing when you add it? It actually helps with aroma. Without salt, things taste flat. And as I understand it, because I'm not a chemist, when we add salt, it liberates water molecules, which then get the aromas going. Let's talk about where salt comes from. There's lots of different ways to to get at salt. So was all salt created equal at the beginning? We just have different ways of extracting it from different things? Yeah, all salt basically originates in the ocean. Um, But some of it is now, because of the history of the earth, some of it's found in a hardened state as like rock. So, you know, that old phrase of, you know, oh, I got to get back to the salt mine. That was, you know, like a coal face, you know, chipping away salt. There's a cathedral in Poland underground and in Colombia being carved out in salt mines. And then there's salt in the form of, it's diluted as a brine, but it's inland. So it's not in the sea. It's a well, a salt spring inland. But in each case, when you find salt, if it's in the form of a brine coming out of the ground or in the ocean, you have to do something to get it. It's a low concentration. And so the water's salty. You don't want to drink it. But if you need salt salt, you know, for your food or for preservation, you have to boil that water or have the sun evaporate the water so that the salt is left. And that's, that's a problem in a place where, say, you don't have a lot of wood or you don't have a lot of sunshine, so evaporation doesn't work. And so there's some really amazing solutions that humans have come up with over the millennia, really, to get this thing that they absolutely have to have. So here, here's a question I've never been able to answer. So salt is over 99% sodium chloride. So people go, oh, Hawaiian salt or Himalayan salt or this salt or gray salt or black salt. Mm. And boy, we should have different colors of salt because they all taste different. If salt is almost entirely sodium chloride, are there enough minerals in the salt to actually taste the difference between different kinds of salt? When you actually taste it, you know, on the end of your finger, you can taste differences between salts. And then the texture, in other words, the shape of the crystal, affects sort of how it is if you sprinkle it on food right then. But once you've dissolved it in a soup, you're just getting saltiness. So I think it's lovely to have finishing salts, you know, sort of crystal shapes to appreciate for sprinkling on. And the different salts are also a treat for the cook, just thinking, oh, a choice, I have a choice, you know. But actually, for general cooking, there is no point in spending the money on a fancy salt when, in fact, you just want a salt that's going to work and be comfortable in your hand. Let's talk about the history a little bit. Salt has been used as money. Uh, It was taxed. You write, the British tax on salt in India led to Gandhi's very effective salt march in the spring of 1930. So salt has political consequences too. Well, sure. If there's something that everyone needs, and some people have it and some people don't, then of course there's an imbalance of power. And the people that have it could just be generous-minded and say, oh, let's, we'll share. But since when has that 
being true, ever. you know, with nation states or, you know, ever. No, they deal, they exact a price for the thing they have that you want. And what is that price? Well, it can be various. It can be power. Uh, the British basically wanting to tax salt. They're, they're squeezing money out of people. The Japanese taxed salt from the early 1900s to pay for the, the war against Russia. They forced all the salt to be sold centrally. Um, the Italians taxed salt. So it's a government tool. Well, the French, the Gabelle, that, uh, that's one of the causes of the French Revolution. And also places got rich, like Venice, with the salt trade. You know, a lot of people would write a book on a topic like salt, and they would Google things and, I guess, maybe in the old days go to the library. But you actually get on planes and go places because that, that's what you do. So you went to a lot of really interesting places to see salt harvesting. So what were a few of them? And it, was there anything that really struck you in some of these places? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I, I had been to some of those places in the course of working on other books, so I was, I was lucky given the way the world turned in the last few years. I had some previous experience to draw on. And then for the book explicitly, I went to Basque country and the Salinas de Añana. So you think of Basque country, Spain. Okay, so it must salt must be on the coast. Well, no, that was a place where there was a salt spring at the top of a hill, basically. And it's it cascades down the hill. And now the evaporation happens in terraces. It looks like rice terraces, hmm. but the pools are like pools, you know, in the along the ocean, except they're terraced down the hill. And the, as the brine uh, concentrates, it goes down, and eventually you have salt at the bottom of the hill. I didn't know about that, and I was reading casually, and I thought, oh, wow, this can be my first stop for the book. So you're in Cambodia, Phnom Penh, and you go to Kampat, and then you find a bicycle to rent to pedal out to the salt fields. Mm -hmm. Do you frequently travel in very local ways? Uh, you're walking around, you're on a bicycle, etc. Well, how else am I going to be there? I mean, otherwise I'm sort of floating above or something. Right. I mean, I'm interested in encounter and in feeling connected to where I am. And the best way to do that is to kind of put in that sort of time of just being present, hoping that something will happen. But I can't do that if I'm in a rented car. So I, I imagine you as sort of a wandering pilgrim, because I, I would assume there are times where you don't know where you'll be spending the night. Oh, yeah, for sure. Just tell us a little bit about how that works. Well, if I get everything set ahead of time, if I somehow magically made bookings for everything ahead of time, then I'd be imprisoned by the limitations of the knowledge I had before I went there. And what I want to do is tune in as soon as possible to where I am. And I don't care if it's not the best place. I'm not looking for the best or the cheapest or the... I'm just trying to go with it. And I guess that's partly because I'm also... The thing I spend is time. Instead of spending money, I'm spending time. Naomi, it's been, uh, once again, a great pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's always a treat to talk to you. That was Naomi Duguid. Her book is The Miracle of Salt. So salt may, in fact, be responsible for the growth of civilization, yet today it's regarded as a health risk. So I went searching for convincing data. In one 2014 review, seven studies were listed, Six of them were cohort studies, and cohort studies make it very difficult to isolate just one factor. In fact, high blood pressure might result from high sodium intake, but also could be due to lack of exercise, economic status, overall diet, environmental pressures, or genetic predisposition. So even the authors of that 2014 paper concluded that the evidence of high sodium intake causing adverse outcomes was limited. Plus, the vast majority of salt intake actually comes from processed takeout and restaurant foods. Only 10% comes from home consumption. So my advice, as always, is cook from scratch, avoid processed foods, and salt your food properly so you can actually enjoy it. And that is a simple recipe for both health and happiness.
I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Hungarian paprika potatoes. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Hungary, Budapest, mm. another watering hole for you in your long <laughs> year of travels. I was there a very long time ago. And I think we both found that paprika is a thing in of itself. It's not just yet another little spice to add to a bunch of others. It has personality. There are lots of versions of it. And it can be, you know, a major home run in lots of recipes, right? Oh, my God. It is, like, insane. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. I've decided it's not a seasoning. It is a reason. That's it. I mean, many recipes exist in Hungary solely to showcase paprika. There are stewed peppers where it's all about the paprika. You know, of course, the classic paprikash where it's all about chicken, but it's really about the paprika. <laughs> and there are just so many dishes that are built around this. They put it in the cocktails. They put it on their desserts. I mean, it really is just a wonderful and in Hungarian cuisine, dominant seasoning. When I was there recently, I had a dish that kind of just epitomized this approach to paprika, that it is going to be the star of the meal, and it is the reason for preparing the dish, and it was paprika potatoes. <laughs> it was very simple. So odd that all of a sudden paprika becomes the star with potatoes, because I think here in the States, potatoes are the star of potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. It's not yes. the paprika. So just give me a quick summary. How do you make these and how does paprika become so essential? Basically, you start with onion, paprika, and some sort of fat, which is considered the trinity of Hungarian cooking. You cook that down. And we're not just talking like a little bit of paprika. We're talking about at least a quarter cup of paprika per dish. And to this mix of onions, paprika, and fat, you add potatoes. And as the potatoes tenderize and cook down and release their starches, the liquid cooks down from the onions and the paprika and the fat. And it creates this incredibly unctuous, really thick paprika sauce that coats these potatoes so thickly, so richly, with just a wonderful, sweet, smoky pepperiness. And that's it. I mean, this is such a simple dish. You combine these ingredients in a pot, you let them cook until it reduces down, creates its own sauce that is just wildly flavorful, and you're done. It was so good. And it made me a true believer that the potatoes exist for the paprika. So I know there's sweet paprika, which I assume is what you're using here. There's hot. Are there a whole variety of types in Hungary? There are gradients of heat, basically. You start with sweet, of course, which is what is used in this dish. And then you can have a little less sweet. You can have moderately warm. You can have kind of spicy. You can have searingly spicy. And increasingly now you also have smoked paprika. So as in all things culinary, it's not simple. <laughs> Never is, even when it is. <laughs> J.M., thank you. Hungarian paprika braised potatoes. And it's all about the paprika. Thanks. Thank you. You can get the recipe for Hungarian paprika braised potatoes at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we're diving deeper into salt. Alex Inews went on a quest to make his own. And he shares his results after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Malt, and I will be answering a few more of your kitchen questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Where are you calling from? I am calling from Los Angeles. What can we do for you today? Well, you know, today I want to talk about salt. I've done my due diligence, and I understand the concept between the two kosher salts and the density of their flake size. And when I'm cooking uh, savory items, it's not that hard. You know, you taste, you adjust, you taste, you adjust. But when you're baking, I found it's a very different story. And so when I see a recipe and it just says two tablespoons of salt, what am I supposed to use? It can make a big difference in baking. Am I using table salt? Am I using kosher salt? If it doesn't say, what do I do? That is a problem. I generally use table salt. It's finer. It dissolves faster. I know it has additives. It has iodine added. But that is what I would generally do. But here's what I want to say. 
I will stick my finger into the raw batter to check out the salt. So it's really up to you. If you feel brave and you're healthy, I didn't tell you to do it, but I do it. (laughs) And that way I can gauge, you know, I would always start with less than what they say. But salt is a very important part of sweet desserts to balance them. And um, Chris, what do you think? Well, there are different questions here. If a recipe calls for a teaspoon of salt, what kind of salt are they calling for? And I think the answer is table salt, unless otherwise specified. I agree. You want to check in the intro of a book because they might say, you know, all the salt in this book is kosher salt. You said you know the substitutions, so you know diamond crystal. You have to use twice as much as table salt. And Morton's kosher salt, about 1.1 or 1.2 times as much as table salt. As far as checking, I have no problem risking my life for salt levels. Uh, that's fine. I, I like to live on the wild side. But in some recipes like bread dough and other things, you add the salt, for example, towards the end. And to then incorporate more salt and you're tasting, you know, dough you're kneading, it's a little tricky. But I do agree with Sarah, though, and this is really critical. I've spent some time with Cheryl Day down in Savannah recently at Back in the Day Bakery. We were talking about this. Lots of old recipes never call for salt, let's say, in a chocolate cake which is a huge mistake because desserts, especially sweet desserts, salt's great because it balances that sweetness and also punches up the flavors. So if you're working with a recipe for a dessert that's not calling for salt, I would definitely add salt. I have recently become a convert to that. If it doesn't say, I will throw a pinch or two in anyway, especially chocolate things. Exactly. Chocolate really benefits from salt. I would assume table salt, but you just might want to check the intro to the book to make sure. Okay, great. Thanks Thank for calling. Thank you so yes. much. Okay. Yeah, our pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Sarah and I are here to help you with all of your cooking problems. Just call us at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Atlanta, Georgia. How can we help you today? Well, I'm actually calling in today because I have a follow-up from a previous call about an Argentine pastry called apajore. Oh, yes. So tell us the follow-up. What happened? I have a question about the flour being used. My girlfriend, who's been making these pastries, uses a flour from Argentina, and it's labeled as four zeros. And every country has their own type of milling process and wheat processing. So we were looking for a domestic equivalent of that flour that we could use to save some money. And I took your suggestion, Sarah, and tried the white lily flour that's available here in the Southeast. Low protein. I think it's like 9%. And how'd it go? It worked well in terms of how the cookie baked out towards the end. They were very similar. I will say the white lily flour probably has less protein than this four zero flour from Argentina. The dough is very soft and very loose, a little bit harder to work with. But I think if we use a blend of half and half, we might find a good middle ground so we don't use so much of the imported flour. But it worked out well. Oh, good. I remember the call, and I think what I said was the number of zeros was a function of the fineness of the grind, that it wasn't necessarily a function of protein content. At least that's true in Italy, but Argentina, as you said, might be a different system. Have you tried just all-purpose, like gold metal flour, sort of lower-protein all-purpose flour? We tried some all-purpose flour, but it actually became more sticky and more goopy. I don't think it absorbed as much water as the other flours. We did use all-purpose successfully, but it was a much harder dough to work with. So when you said you mixed half white lily and half all-purpose, is that what you did in the end? No, we ended up mixing half and half with the four zero and the white lily, because the white lily is still a lot less expensive than the four zero. Okay, so that actually worked for you. So that's what you're going to do moving forward. That seemed to be a good solution. There's only one other thing you might try, because as you pointed out, different protein contents require different amount of liquid because the absorption rate's different. You might try all-purpose again, but change the amount of liquid. If you're saying the dough is too hard, for example, you might add more liquid to get the right texture of dough and just give that a shot. Because I I think your objective is not to have to buy the expensive Argentinian flour, right? That's correct. 
The only other thing you can do, replace some with the flour with cornstarch, and that'll reduce your protein level because cornstarch is pure starch, has no protein. Yeah, we actually do use a portion of cornstarch in the dough recipe, so maybe we can just increase a little bit. Yeah, trial purpose and increase the cornstarch and then just adjust the liquid to get the right texture. Anyway, it sounds like, Sarah, I think you had a success here. Okay, well, give me one point, huh? <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> All right, thanks for calling back. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, I'm Deborah in Maryland with a little tip. If you ever cut open an avocado and find that it's too hard to use, don't despair. What I do is slice it up, saute it in some olive oil for a few minutes, and it's quite delicious and ready to use. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip right here on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Earlier, we got a crash course on salt from Naomi Duguid, but it turns out that salt has also become an obsession with our very own Alex Inews. Hey, Alex, what's going on? Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm good. I hope you're more cheerful than I am. I am super cheerful. I've been working <laughs> with something simple yet fascinating recently, and that is salt. <laughs> I didn't know if I was going to wow you with just salt, but trust me, I think I can. Okay. I've been working with something called gourmet salt, which I'm sure you must be very familiar to. Yeah. So gourmet salt is that finishing, very expensive salt that you can use to create texture on dishes. When I go to the supermarket and I see that table salt is usually sold for like maybe a dollar a kilo and gourmet salt can go for up to $40 a kilo. I'm thinking why? So what I did, I took these two salts and I put them under the lens of a microscope. And what I found was shocking. Table salt, whatever the coarseness, is always like rocks basically. There is nothing special about what you see under the microscope. It's like either cubes or rocks, but it's solid. It's packed. Right. However, gourmet salt is incredible. Like, like a molden salt, for example. Exactly, hollow, like molden right. salt. In France, the most famous one is called fleur de sel, but it's exactly like molden salt. When you look at it through the lens of a microscope, these crystals, they are like inverted hollow pyramids, which is crazy. It really looks like an Egyptian pyramid. And that's why when you have these enormous flakes on something you eat, it explodes, it dissolves very easily. That's why it's so pleasant. If you were to pick up like a, a big piece of table salt and you bite into it, it's not pleasant. It's like too harsh for the teeth. But with gourmet salt, it's amazing. So following that thinking that, yes, that salt is amazing, but still it's very expensive, how can I avoid buying it? So, so you're, you're going to spend $1,000 on technology to figure out how to make your own gourmet salt instead of spending 8 or $9 for a box? More or less. If I could find technology that would solve this, I would have bought it. But however, there's no technology for it. I just had to spend tons of time, but not, not so much money, in fact. Okay. So what I did, I went to the best place I know in France for salt, and that is called Guérande. There, I've learned a few things about technology, about how to make it, and I made sure that I got the right knowledge. But I also brought back with me big bags of table salt. Table salt tends to be mined, and is gourmet salt mostly sea salt or not? So the salt they make over there is a bit different. So they've got pools of salt in the salt marshes. Right. And in these pools, at the very bottom, lies most of the salt. It, okay. It's really like a big crust that you unstick from the bottom, and that creates table salt. I, right. If you grind it thin, or like a coarse table salt, if you grind it coarse. Okay. At the very surface of these pools, on very specific days, under very specific weather, sun, wind conditions, forms a super delicate layer of gourmet salt. Hmm. So that's why that stuff is super expensive. It's super scarce. Oh, I see. And my idea was more like to buy cheap salt and try to recreate in some ways 
the gourmet salt, but in my studio and for a fraction of the cost. So my visit there was mostly to supply myself with like tons of raw material, the cheap stuff, but still good quality, and also to educate myself, which I did. Initially, just by the way, uh, I wanted to bring back just seawater, but I made the math, it's impossible. I, I would have had to come back with like a, a truck full of seawater, more or less. I, I thought you were going to flood your studio. Turn it into a salt pool. That's exa- that was exactly my point. <laughs> I figured it. You start to know me better than I of do. Of course. So with the salt that I brought back, I diluted it in water. I created a very saturated solution. It's almost like 10 times more than seawater in order to speed up the salt making process that was going to happen afterwards. Once I got enough salty solution, then I started a very slow, very steady evaporation process using my stove and plates of metal in order to distribute the heat properly. What happened afterwards was genuinely fascinating, okay? With just that super saturated water and a gentle heat and loads of time, I was able to create the exact crystals that these Mm. companies are selling for a big buck in my studio. I could say that it was super complicated, but it wasn't. It's just taking time. I think any kid could do it, you know, under the supervision of their parents, obviously. How much time are we talking? It's almost like an afternoon up to two days. Oh, okay. The problem is I wasn't able to make that much salt. Still, what I did was profitable. The salt that I bought was super cheap. The salt that I made, even though I made a tiny amount, it was still way more... I, I had created some money, basically, doing this. And I thought, could I turn this into a business? Don't quit your day job. Exactly, please. exactly. So I mean, you're spending all this time and effort and buying bags of salt and no, waiting two days. No, it's pure curiosity. It's, it is pure curiosity. And you save $9.75, right? <laughs> exactly. I felt, okay, let, let's spit it out. I felt like God in my studio. I felt like God creating matter. It's alive. Matter. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. No, I mean, seriously, I was creating salt and I thought... Salt is not something you create. That's cool. Salt is something you buy because it's cheap. And then I created it. I don't know. It was just eye-opening for me. And the salt flakes that I made put the commercial ones to shame. Oh. I made enormous flakes. It is not something I think they can create because when they transport them, when they convey them or they pack them, they destroy them also. I was picking mine with a, you know, um, a pair of tweezers. But anyways, it was fascinating to make my own gourmet salt. And I think genuinely that I will never do this again in the future because it takes too much time. Alex, you are, in fact, a French god. (laughs) You probably save 15 bucks. Thank you so much. That was YouTube host Alex Inews. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member, get full access to every recipe, to all of our live stream cooking classes, free standard shipping from the Milk Street store, and more. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by City Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.